Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is your host, Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit organizations all across the country to translate your vision into reality. Welcome everybody back to the podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about, so we're recording this episode the day after Election Day 2022. We're going to be talking about how nonprofits can drive civic engagement within their own communities. So we all are familiar with some of the guardrails around nonprofits as it relates to election activities. Uh, but we also know that nonprofits play a vital role in everything from voter education to issue education about issues that are pertinent to their own mission. To help us in this conversation today, I'm thrilled to welcome Aaron Hamlin. Aaron is the executive director of the Center for Election Science. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. Aaron, tell us a little bit about your background and sort of the story of the founding of the Center for Election Science, what you do there. Yeah, so my personal background is in the social sciences. I have a couple of graduate degrees there as well as a law degree. And in terms of the starting of the organization, I um, actually incorporated the organization when I was in law school. Um, but the I feel like the, the story of how this started was when I was in uh, graduate school in terms of how the concept of what we focus on, which is the voting method, kind of first came to light. Um, and I think like a lot of folks, um, the idea of a voting method is really foreign. So like if you go out and ask someone, for instance, on the street and say like, hey, like what's a voting method? They would say like you choose a candidate and the candidate with the most votes wins. Um, but there are all kinds of ways of, of doing that. And so I think back to in graduate school, I was uh, in this student group and we were out to dinner and we were all talking about who we were going to vote for. And this was in 2008. And as we were going around and I was listening to my friend's stories, they were talking about voting for candidates who I knew didn't align with their interests. And so when I was pressing them on it, they would say something like, well, like they're not going to win. And to me, this was a bit startling because, I mean, if these folks weren't going to support these candidates, then then who would? And so as a, as a consequence, I kind of left there thinking like, well, I could keep kind of like pressing my friends or uh, perhaps there's some other factor um, kind of influencing how they're, they're behaving. And that's how I personally uh, came to think about uh, voting methods and over time, met other uh, folks also thinking about this um, and that kind of, of uh, uh, stirring, so to speak, among uh, others is how we kind of formed this initial group to get things uh, started in the beginning. Okay. And when you talk about a, a voting method, I, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of us would think about, you know, one vote, one candidate, we're making a, you know, a, a choice, whether it's by party, whether it's by issue. What are you specifically referring to when you talk about voting voting method? Yeah. So uh, a voting method is the tool that we have to express information. Um, it's calculated in a certain way. And then as uh, and then we see the results that are used to choose specific candidates. Um, so uh, this choose one method that we're used to uh, does that by saying like, okay, you pick one candidate um, and then you add up all the votes uh, and the candidate with the most votes is the one who wins. Um, but there are other ways of doing that. There are other ways of providing information. So with the way that uh, the method that we advocate for called approval voting, 
lets you select as many candidates as you want. Imagine checking off as many candidates as you want, not ranking or anything else complicated. And so here you're providing a different type of expression. You're saying, okay, these are all the candidates that I'm fine with. And you, as an individual, de determine where that threshold is. And you're still just um, adding up all the votes and the candidate with the most votes wins. And you can see um, which candidate has the higher, highest percentage of approvals over all the ballots. And that candidate is the winner. So this approval method of voting that you're talking about, is this, so many, many of our listeners may not be familiar with it or may not have ever voted um, using that method. Is this something that is present in communities across the, across the country? Yeah, so uh, we use a number of factors to think about like, so we went into this actually agnostic uh, at first in terms of thinking about which voting method to advocate for. And we were looking at factors such as like, does it do a good job in winner selection? Does it get a nice consensus candidate? Does it actually measure candidates' support accurately, even once you don't win? Then also thinking about like, okay, is this practical? Um, is it easy to understand? Is it easy to implement? And approval voting did great on all three of these different uh, criteria. Um, the challenge was getting it implemented um, because it hadn't been used anywhere outside of academia. And so, uh, so far, we've uh, worked with communities in two cities and now working on the third um, to get it implemented. Uh, so the first was Fargo, North Dakota, which is about 125,000 people. And uh, there, like many cities, um, they had vote splitting uh, in their commission and mayoral races. And so they, uh, uh, interestingly there, they created a, a, a task force. The task force actually recommended approval voting to the commission, but the commission ignored it. And so one of the members on the task force said, you know what, I'm not gonna just sit on my hands here like, like you are. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, work with the, the community and gather signatures and get on the ballot. And it passed by 63% there. And then you had St. Louis with its own separate story um, passing approval voting by 68%. And it's been okay. used in both of those cities so far. And it'll be on the ballot this November in Seattle, Washington, where it's already polling at 70%. And so, Aaron, if I'm understanding it correctly, when we talk about approval voting, one of the benefits for citizens is it, it gives you the opportunity to express your voice, your freedom of speech um, in a different way by, by selecting as many candidates as you personally feel passionately about. Yeah, that's right. And then you can think about, like, for example, in primaries, for, exist, uh, for, for instance, when you may look at a, a candidate and you can also see this in general elections as well, of course. But you can look at the candidate list and think like, okay, well, um, I there are multiple people that I like here, um, but I can't support multiple of them right now. So like this actually gives you the freedom to be able to do that. And then on top of that, if there are candidates that you're looking at them and thinking like, well, I like their ideas, but I don't think they're going to win. Well, you can you can go ahead and support them anyway under approval voting, which is a new a new kind of uh, light that we're not used to. I think in many cases when we're presented a ballot, uh, we're kind of insinuated to not to dare look uh, beyond the, the front runners because it's you, uh, the idea like, okay, well, you're not gonna, um, you're gonna be wasting your vote. You may be guilted by uh, friends, for instance, but approval voting, there's, there's none of that. You don't have to feel guilty. Um, if you like a candidate, you support them. If uh, you think that that's not gonna allow you to have a say in the eventual outcome, you can look among the front runners too. You're not limited in the way that you currently are with our choose one method. Approval voting gives you an expression 
unlike uh, we've seen before. So, Aaron, I want to shift slightly to talk about, uh, you know, many of our listeners are nonprofit executive directors, nonprofit board members who may think about civic engagement more than just on Election Day. Right. We, we have a mission. We are trying to garner support. We're trying to garner energy and stakeholders around that mission. I'm curious, uh, do you at the center or how do you how do you all approach or maybe give tips for nonprofits to gather some of that excitement and momentum around their issue and drive civic engagement? So one of the ways that we work to help cultivate uh, these groups around the country is through a nationwide chapter program. And this is what we use to be able to um, help advance these local communities and these groups within these communities to uh, graduate to the point where they feel comfortable running these campaigns. And so this is kind of like the, the starting point. And then also um, continuing to work with those communities so that they can uh, continue to educate uh, future voters within their community. And all of this happens outside of just on election day. So it's important that we're working with communities to do all this background work as well. And I think that that's an important point about civic engagement is that we're not just talking about gathering votes. We're not just talking about um, voter participation on election day, but civic engagement's broader than that. Civic engagement is that steady dialogue of communication uh, between constituents and leaders that occurs throughout the year. So, you know, I think it's important for nonprofits to realize that when we're talking about civic engagement, it's about how do you elevate the issues that you care most deeply about and how do you inspire those who support your mission um, to voice those issues to leaders in positions of power? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so for nonprofits that are, you know, as an attorney, I know you're you're aware of sort of the guardrails that exist for nonprofits around election activities, but there's this common misperception that nonprofits can't engage in advocacy, can't engage in lobbying. When you're talking to nonprofits about um, civic engagement, education, awareness, um, how do you present that to nonprofits? How do you present some strategies for them to engage those who care most about their mission uh, in in this kind of civic dialogue that occurs year round? Yeah, I, I think, like you like you mentioned, there's some uh, uh, hesitancy, I think, from some nonprofits about doing anything that appears to be lobbying, and, and in some cases, just having the outright false impression that they can't do any kind of lobbying. Um, and so, there to get a little bit technical, like highlighting that, okay, well, um, there's uh, there are a couple of tests that the IRS uses for 501c3 organizations. There's the substantial part test, which is a bit of an ambiguous test that looks at overall. Um, effort uh, applied to uh, lobbying, including non-monetary uh, effort, uh, and they don't give specific thresholds, uh, but it's still saying like, hey, like you can influence uh, elections in terms of uh, ballot initiatives uh, and looking at particular issues. You can't touch anything that relates to actual candidates or parties. Um, that's an absolute barrier, um, but you can talk about particular issues, particularly with, with ballot initiatives as well. And then if you're nervous about the ambiguity of the substantial part test, you can also opt into something called the expenditure test, uh, which uses a scale based on total expenditures that a nonprofit has over a particular um, multi-year window. 
and uh, and and there you just track your expenses uh, overall, um, both with your lobbying and your overall expenses minus your um, expenses towards um, uh, contracting with firms for fundraising. For some reason, they make you subtract that out. Um, so if you look at the fine print, they they make you do that. Um, and then if you're looking at things at a larger scale um, for perhaps larger campaigns where your expenditures are much larger and you wouldn't pass the expenditure test, um, it may also think about setting up a 501c4, uh, which gets around that, um, those limits. Um, and uh, I also uh, have a, an essay on, on that or, whole ordeal um, on my uh, uh, personal website, which is just aaronhamlin.com. And on, on there, I talk a bit about how the process for setting up a 501c4 is um, all, uh, apparently like purposefully complex and uh, onerous uh, compared to uh, what it what it needs to be. And, and I, I think like it, like looking at that and reflecting, it's like, well, why would it be uh, set up that way? And I think that's part of like how you mentioned initially, like some folks are, are kind of afraid of of, of lobbying and also sometimes we get this um, uh, distorted image of of these organizations that do all this lobbying but um, we have to think too like when we think about some of the groups that we like um, many of them set up 501c4s as well and we can't just be know, uh, afraid of the ones that we don't like because if we set up onerous barriers uh, what we do is we say you can only do this type of activity if you have resources and access uh, to the type of expensive uh, resources that allow you to do this. So if I'm a, if I'm leading a nonprofit and you know mobilizing the public, mobilizing my supporters is is part of what I do. Um, how do you advise nonprofits of to consider where that line or that threshold is between when can I do this under my existing 501c3? And then what are some of that, maybe two or three of the indicator lights that say, you know what, we're, we're really in a, in a place in our organization's life cycle where maybe we should be considering establishing a C4 to, to carry out some of these activities. What is that? What are some of those considerations? Yeah. So I think the, uh, the initial part is thinking about like how much. Um, so if you if you're unsure at all, I think it makes sense to think about opting into the expenditure test, which uh, there you follow. I believe it's a Schedule H, um, and and uh, and once you opt into that, you can begin to kind of track ex- explicitly. Um, and there you're looking at uh, activity that explicitly uh, looks at. Uh, identifying a particular initiative, uh, for instance, and then whether it says to vote yes or no on that. And if you're hitting those categories, then um, you are purely counting dollars towards that expenditure test. Now, if you're looking at that and thinking like, well, like it seems like it's going to be kind of close in terms of what we're doing in terms of meeting that test, um, then it's maybe start to, uh, time to start thinking about setting up a C4. And um, of course, the, the trade-off of the C4 is donors to a C4 cannot make deductions the same way they can for a C3. And so um, uh, gathering funds for a C4 can be a bit more challenging in, in some ways, but at least you don't have to worry about the caps that a 501C3 has. 
Aaron, those who listen to the podcast know that um, one of my passions professionally is working with nonprofit boards. And boards are notoriously risk averse. And sometimes when you mention this, you know, this phrase civic engagement, it, it generates different images in their minds. I know you've worked with and served on nonprofit boards as well. How do you, um, what do you recommend when it comes to nonprofit boards as they help their organizations think through what is the proper way to drive civic engagement for our nonprofit? Um, well, I, I think like in terms of thinking about buy-in with a, a board and addressing um, their concerns is like one, being clear on what the guidelines are. And then also um, preferably having a member of the board who is a bit more sophisticated with this. So whether it be having an attorney on the board or having a CPA on the board, um, for us, like having a CPA on our board was really helpful and getting the, the board another uh, perspective and verification on looking at this type of test. Aaron, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that information is really the first place to start with boards. As you mentioned, so many times there is misinformation or just a lack of clarity in the board member's own mind about what are we able to do. And I want to make sure we're not exposing ourselves to any legal risk. Some of the other counter arguments I hear from board members are around the risk of alienation of people. You know, we, we live in a notoriously polarized time right now. If our organization is going to try and drive civic engagement, do we run the risk of alienating potential donors, supporters, community members who would otherwise support our mission? How, uh, in your work in driving civic engagement, how have you helped uh, groups navigate that? Or how have you thought through sort of the, the, the risk versus the benefit of civic engagement? So I think for this type of question, it's important to think about what your organization's mission and overall goals are. If what you're doing aligns with your mission and your goals, then it makes sense to take part in that activity. Um, for us, it's really important that we're clear that what we're doing is extremely nonpartisan. Um, we look at this uh, 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 blindly in terms of, of who we think may benefit, like that's not something that we uh, care about. We care about uh, giving voters agency and allowing them to have a tool to elect people who best represent them. And who that's gonna be is gonna vary depending on the community that they live in. So in some communities, they're gonna be a bit more conservative, so they're a bit more liberal. Um, the, the voting method is blind to that. All it does is give you a nice consensus winner um, for whomever you're, uh, population is made up of, uh, whether they be conservative or liberal or, or more moderate, wherever they are. And so for us, it's important for us to communicate that element. Now, uh, because like we, we do get weird emails sometimes, for, for instance, where, and I think like lots of uh, nonprofit executives are, are used to kind of strange emails every once in a while, uh, where uh, some folks look at us and say like, well, like, I don't know what you are, like, you may be conservative, you may be really liberal. Like, are you liberal? Are you conservative? Like, what are you? And it's like, like this is all we care about. We 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 are not uh, like what my personal politics are or what individual board members' politics are. Like, doesn't matter. Like, we don't care about that. All we care about is giving you, uh, your community, um, the tool to be able to elect people who who represent you. And um, 
it's not a, uh, and, and as long as you're able to communicate like that, okay, like here, we're not talking about a partisan thing. Um, and if you're, say your, your community or your, the stakeholders for a particular nonprofit are a little bit more right or are a little bit left, like that's just like something you have to keep in mind. It's like, if it's a particular mission, um, like kind of stereotypically that, that, that way, then like you just have to keep in mind also um, what your mission is and who your actual audience is. I think that's so important. Anytime you're talking about civic engagement is just that clarity of message, right? There's always that, um, you know, once the, once the train starts rolling out of the station, does the messaging get away from you? And I think being really clear at the outset of any um, civic engagement activities of what are we, you know, what is our aim? Who are we as an organization? And then being able to pivot back to your core values as an organization. What does this activity say about who you are? How is what you're going to do reflective of your core values as an organization? I think that's a really that's a really important point. Yeah, sure. Aaron, um, as we wrap up, I want to make sure that anyone listening to the podcast um, knows how to get a hold of you if they would like more information, both about the voting method as well as about civic engagement um, and the topics that we've discussed today. Aaron, how can folks get a hold of you? The best way is to go to electionscience.org. Uh, there you can sign up for our newsletter, see um, the uh, campaigns that we're uh, working on with local communities. And it's getting really exciting because we're looking at also pivoting into states as well. Um, so this is a really exciting time, the lifespan uh, of our organization. Um, you can also uh, connect with us on social media. Um, Election Science is our Twitter handle. Um, if you want to follow me as well, it's just Aaron F. Hamlin on, on Twitter. I also do stuff on uh, um, transit and lock picking and other, and other fun stuff. So you get <laughs> lock, a variety. Did you say lock picking? Lock picking, yeah, uh, <laughs> a variety of, of, of hobbies. Okay, and so follow follow Aaron, <laughs> and you will not only learn about election uh, election science, but you also might know might figure out how to how to get yourself out of a jam if you if you locked your keys in the car. And I think another thing that some listeners may find valuable uh, on my uh, personal website, I have a long list of essays, uh, not just on uh, voting theory, but also on a lot dealing with uh, nonprofits, including hiring processes, uh, looking at starting a nonprofit, filling out the 1024A form to be able to set up a 501c4. Um, so a lot of helpful resources as well uh, for, for folks already in the space or thinking about getting into the space. Wonderful. Aaron, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Um, for those who are listening, encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues uh, as we continue to grow this community. If you're enjoying the podcast, really encourage you to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Till we meet again, I encourage everyone. I hope everyone stays safe, stay well, and we'll be back soon with another episode.